welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Nigel Walsh. Nigel is a partner in Deloitte Digital and leads the firm's proposition for insured tech disruptors and how they engage across the insurance sector. Known as Mr. InsureTech, he is a respected industry commentator and influencer and is regularly featured in industry trade news, sharing his take on the latest trends in innovation. In addition to this, Nigel is the co-host of his own podcast, InsureTech Insider, where he shares the latest news, insights and debate within the InsureTech space. If that wasn't enough, he is also co-author of the recently launched InsureTech book, sharing his chapter on frictionless insurance in a land of utility. We cover some really interesting topics in this conversation, including what good innovation looks like and how corporates should be approaching innovation to deliver results, what really matters when it comes to selecting your insurer and why there's more to think about than which site gives you the best soft toy. And a spoiler alert here, Nigel tells me off for doing just that. Disruption in the consulting industry and what changes our own industry is facing. And collaboration and the story behind Nigel's industry-leading podcast, which he co-hosts with another consulting firm. It was great fun speaking with Nigel and getting his perspective on innovation within the insurance industry and beyond. If you're interested in what's going on in the insure tech space, or you want to understand how you can work with innovative tech businesses as a consultant, then this episode is a must listen. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Nigel Walsh. Hi, Nigel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I think let's dive straight in. And it'd actually be great to kick off by getting your thoughts on it. It was a post that you put up on LinkedIn to advertise an event you were running. And I know we had a bit of a chat on it. And I think it's a really good place to start on innovation in general. And what you said was, let's be honest about it. The way innovation works in a lot of big companies is repeating the same process and hoping for different results. The buzzwords have taken over. I think to kick off, it'd be great to understand what that means to you and, and what prompted you to write that. Blimey, that was some time ago as well now. It's more along the lines of working in corporates, we often follow corporate governance to get stuff done. And as a net result, we, fo- we apply a process to doing something. And funnily enough, that process matches the corporate culture for that said organisation. And as a result, we don't really get the multiple or desire that we had in the first place for the outcome that we wanted. So people look to the outside world and go, oh, look, innovation is running at a pace. And as a net result, we want that pace into our firm. But they they forget the X firm factor. And what I mean by that is if you apply their own logic and understanding, the net result there is it may actually take a little bit longer or not be as quick by doing it using their internal people and processes as opposed to something they can borrow from external. If that makes sense. So is that firms are putting the right foundations in place? Or is that, I'm just trying to sort of place that point. Is it around the infrastructure in terms of setting that firm up to innovate? Or is it more around understanding what you're good at and bringing in help where you need it? It's a bit of all of those. And if you go back to the real basics of people, process and technology, if you take the same people that you've got today and go, you need to be more innovative and stick them in a lab with bean bags and whatever else, they're not overnight going to grow a different mindset, become more innovative. You may, and quite often we see this, unleash the shackles from the day-to-day mundane things that stop people being as innovative as they want to be by giving them control, freedom, capability, and so much more to do some stuff. But often I, I see people required to help out with the process. How do we navigate the process in a different way? How do we 
wrap them with the right support. I had one startup talk to me about how they were six months into a four-week pilot. And that was all around the fact that legal compliance and all the things around the actual proof of concept weren't geared up to support a company that was three men and a dog. So it really is understanding what you're trying to do, remove all the barriers as many as you can in advance and making sure there's a clean, clear way to get them out of the way as quickly as possible there afterwards. And what's your, especially, so you mentioned there around the sort of smaller firms, for the, for the larger firms, where do you see that balance in the industry? And I'm thinking particularly around sort of when we were chatting over that, I made the, the rather flippant joke and I'll sort of say it up front so, so you know who you're dealing with. I think innovation is a great thing. I think a number of firms overuse buzzwords without necessarily understanding why they are innovating or what they are trying to solve. And, you know, much like, I think I saw it, I think, was there a big, it was one of these quotes about big data years ago. I think it was something like, big data is like teenage sex. Everyone says they're doing it because they think everyone else is doing it. Everyone's talking about it, but no one's actually doing it. That's the one. You've, there you go. you've seen the same quote. And I sort of wonder, I mean, to what extent is innovation as it's currently being approached by the majority of corporates like that? And what is it that the best are doing that means actually they are ahead of the pack and tackling it properly? So in some cases, yes. And I think there's various different levels of maturity here. The ones that are doing it well have set their specific teams up for success. They've removed the barriers for what would be the day-to-day process or whatever else inside the organization. They've provided the right support that allows you to get through security, legal, compliance, procurement. You know, don't ask a startup a 700-page or 700-item questionnaire on security and liability when you generally know it's two men and a dog. So have things that are geared and appropriate for the things that you're, you're dealing with and make sure that your risk profile, and again, working inside insurance organizations, we're risk, we're risk management organizations at the end of the day. And I appreciate we're dealing with very sensitive customer or client data. We've just got to be very clear about what we're setting out to do at the outset. So when I start any of these things, the first thing I always ask is, Start with why. Back to the old Simon Simon mm. quote, right? So yeah. what are we trying to do? Are we trying to grow revenue, take out cost, address a specific issue like compliance, or become easier to be uh, around regulation or governance and that sort of stuff? And if you can bucket what you're doing into one or multiple of those, you start to narrow down very quickly what you do need to do and what you don't need to do. And then it's more important about the things you don't need to do as opposed to what you do need to do. So. Yeah. You know, I'm never afraid to sit there and go, why do you mean to do this? What, why is it important? And saying we always have done or that's the process isn't always the right answer. We shouldn't be able to accept yes for an answer or no for an answer. And I think that point, and so I'm, my background's lean. And so all of the questions you've just asked are exactly the things that I'm asking day in, day out. What do you do when you get clients who've gone the other way? So for instance, I know there's a lot of firms who are looking at artificial intelligence which is a great potential tool. But there are times when it looks like organizations are focusing on something like AI or a tool that has a buzzword associated over and above something less sexy like organizational redesign or behavioral change. Some of those sort of more traditional improvement activities, you know, to your point around the why, we want to reduce cost. Sometimes the simplest way could be tighten up your procurement process, not put a robot in to do some whizzy process. But actually, is that a conversation you have ever had to have or a challenge that you've ever leveled someone? And if so, what sort of, what are their response be? All the time. And the answer is quite simply, if you can't be honest with a client, then you're in the wrong job and you should step away from it. And if the answer to the client is, 
actually the answer to your question is Microsoft Excel as opposed to WYSIBANG application because of the volume or the scale or you're focusing on minimum viable product, whatever else, then you need to be honest with client and yourself because as soon as you break your moral backbone and go a different mm. direction, you are in the wrong game, period, in my view. So if the answer needs to be, don't mess around with AI, you need Microsoft Excel, or don't mess around with XYZ because you need the most simple capability tool or elsewhere, then I think you need to be able to either be honest with the client or share the options and the pros and cons for each one as you would in any consulting environment. But I don't think mm. any of those tools should be discounted, especially when you get to this way. Innovation mm. isn't about getting all the latest and greatest tools into an environment, integrating them all and getting you the shiniest, longest buzzword collection of tools that actually doesn't deliver anything. Focus mm. on the why. What are, we, what are we here for? Are we here to launch a product quicker, take cost out? Again, back to the same things we talked about earlier and focus on that and then work out your fastest and easiest path to that point. It's actually worth expanding on that, I think, you know, that, that point around what are you trying to achieve? I, I know you've spoken before around the difference between exponential and incremental innovation. It'd be great just to spend some time on actually what is that definition? Why is it so important to, to understand? Yeah, I often talk about revolution versus evolution. And evolution mm. for me is always about what is our typical steps that we take from a inside out perspective, i.e. I'm sitting inside the organization how do I step out of my current environment? And if I look at the insurance world, it's usually a legacy estate with multiple applications that I'm trying to modernize, optimize, anything ending in eyes, and making it a more flexible and easier environment to interact with. And you can go through a natural, low-risk progression to step out of that. It usually takes a lot of time and a lot of money. The revolutionary approach would be going, is there any value in doing this whatsoever? And if I was building from scratch, what would I do differently? And it may actually say, actually, I'm okay taking on an additional item into my estate. And you might actually say, whilst our ambition is to minimize the number of applications, in this instance, we're going to set up something new because we can see that as a new target state or multiple target states to go and prove this thing actually works. And I think the difference between evolution and revolution comes down to a, your objective, and B, how brave as an organizational management team you want to actually be. I know you're very much focused around the, the London market, or stop me if you're sort of GI focused as well, but I'm, I know before we started this interview, I sort of promised we'd try and keep it within the realms of insurance that people who are non-insurance people understand, because we have an hour and I don't want to have to go into explaining the difference and how insurance works with reinsurance and sort of retro after that. But to that point exactly, something that I find quite interesting, and you've having spoken to you briefly before this, I think you might have an interesting view on or just tell me is nonsense. You know, I, I look at what you've just highlighted there, something like evolution versus revolution. And if we take the general insurance market, lots of insurers are trying to squeeze the pips by doing new systems, putting in new technologies, when actually the only show in town is creating an aggregator and giving out Meerkat. And nonsense. I sort of... No? Absolute Brilliant. Why? So why, why would I do that? We, we, we gave away all the value in insurance years ago when we said to the aggregators, here's all our data, go, go analyze all this thing and get me to the lowest possible price point. What, what, what was the last way you bought your insurance? Did you, when's the last time you bought car insurance? So I actually didn't buy car insurance for an aggregator, but that was just because I saw the ad for Admiral. The last insurance before that, my home insurance, I bought because of the toy. I give up. My life is over. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but genuinely, joking aside... Do you not have any Olegs at home? or I, I have no Olegs at home. I'm sure we have kids that want Olegs at home. And they're cool and funky. But ultimately here, 
the majority of people have been conditioned to leverage an aggregator, put in their 48 or 50 pieces of information and get an mm. insurance quote that is sorted on price by default. Then most people, depending on their age, will then look through it and go, I recognize a brand or don't recognize a brand. And they'll go with one that they are affiliated to, whether it has a soft toy or not, or a singing opera singer or whatever else it might be. But that is generally in the UK how most people do that. Outside the UK, most people think that is alien, although aggregators and whatever else are now starting to appear mm. more and more in, in, in North America and elsewhere. So I, so I don't agree. I, don't, I think most people would head, head to that sort of uh, route first and foremost. And I think that I think generally, whilst they have their place, they don't always give you the ability to compare like for like. And as a net result, they make price the primary point, not value, service, claims experience, or all the things you would expect when you go to use an insurance product. When you bought your insurance, what was their NPS score on claims? Well, and, and so... You don't know. But the points for me, and I'm sure I'm not the first person within the industry to have, have said this, I tend to read policy docs, but I will price in our market is the number one decider of the product you buy. I'm focusing very much there on GI. I don't want to open the sort of London market side. Because no, and GI for everyone else is general insurance, it's home, motor, travel, etc. Exactly. To your point of evolution versus revolution, why are we not seeing more people enter that aggregator market, which while not revolutionary, is the big player in town, but we're seeing a lot of people focus on changing their pricing algorithms, putting in new claim systems. When to your point, claims is key. And you know, I read your blog on LinkedIn about the importance, you know, how you had your claims experience following your mugging, which I'm very sorry to hear about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that for me, and and like I say, maybe it's just a non-starter, but that question of if the customer's buying for soft toys and opera singers, why are more of the market not going for soft toys and opera singers? Because it's saturated. And if you look at where money is made, I think this is the first year in 15 years that motor has made a profit. Home is more profitable, but it's generally a saturated market that, that operates on very, very small margins. We've been focused on taking cost out of organizations generally while IPT, the insurance premium tax, has been going up. So there's been a whole host of pressures. If you've got motor insurance in the last 12 months, you're more than likely to have noticed that the rates have actually gone down. So it's not an mm. easy market to compete in. Add to that the future disruptors of safer cars, autonomous vehicles, and so much more. You have a very interesting market dynamic that says high cost, claims getting more expensive because there's more tech in cars and bumpers that used to be dumb pieces of metal now have cameras and whatever else in them, and cars that crash less frequently make it a really hard and competitive market to be in. There are mm. a small number of big aggregators, I think four or five, and there's a long tail of 60 or 70 different aggregators. So how do you mm. differentiate on that other thing other than dynamic or smart pricing? And if you're an insurance company that has a portfolio, you'd like to manage your risk, you want to be able to change that pricing almost on the fly to say, actually, I'm under on uh, young drivers or that type of risk. I'll buy some more. Therefore, what I'll do is I'll change my price, update it dynamically, get a whole bunch of more people in, and mm. your book is then complete. In the same way that people do on savings accounts and go, actually, I need to go and get more assets under management. I'll increase my savings rate until I get to a certain level. And then at that point, I'll turn it off again. So it's basically mm. very clever management of the organization by the numbers at the back end. So I'm very conscious, insurance being both of our industry, we could dive into some really deep territory there. And to your point, you you caught me using acronyms without explaining it, which is a, a big faux pas for a podcast host, as, as you as a podcast host would well know. 
And so I actually want to bring it, stick with innovation, but actually take it slightly closer to home in terms of our industry. And we've obviously talked about, you know, innovation is something that all industries consultants work with, are working on and are looking to understand and how they can work with startups, how they can leverage their own people, et cetera. And I'd be really interested in your take on actually our industry and how, if at all, you see the consulting industry either innovating currently or what changes you see coming down the pipe that our industry is going to have to respond to? Within consulting itself? Exactly. So we're a people business, ultimately. We are filling the gap for short-term resources or short-to-medium-term resources where clients have a capability or a capacity issue. That is, bottom line, what we do. And and that's what all consulting is, whether you're a 265,000-person Deloitte or whether you're a 100-person challenger consultancy. That's all we do is we bring our expertise, our experience, and everything else together to fill a capability or capacity gap for a moment in time. It makes sense where you don't need to, have, as an organization, to have full-time people dealing with regulation or dealing with compliance issues, and you need to get expert help in for a point in time. If you did need it all the time, it would be much more cost-effective to buy that in and have it yourself on a retained basis. What I see changing, though, is where and how we work. So the whole emergence of the gig economy or sharing economy and we talk about this quite a lot. I actually read a report with Lloyds of London on this recently. But the impact of the gig economy says all those people going forward may not actually be direct employees of Deloitte, EY, PwC, whoever it may be. They may actually be a roaming contractor associate workforce like yourself that we bring mm. into the overall journey, yeah, yet still own the end-to-end outcome for the end client. So you could argue... In some of these situations, clients want to outsource or share the problem and the mitigation of their problem or challenge. And to do that, they get an external party that's going to happily take on the risk. And to do that, we move away from a time and materials basis into a let's do it on a fixed base, fixed price, fixed outcome, and we'll own the resources or whatever else that go in there. There's not too much innovation in there, in, in my mind. Those models have been around for a very long time. We're just getting smarter and more flexible with the actual resourcing of those. Do you see anything that could potentially disrupt that, to your point? The the consulting model hasn't changed largely for, let's say, 50 years. Donkey's years is better. It doesn't doesn't pin a number to it. But do you see anything that could potentially disrupt that? Great question. I don't... There's nothing on the horizon today that gives me any worry for what our industry will look like in multiple years to come. That said, it won't look like it is today. And what we do today compared to what we do five years ago or a year ago is still very different. We have an amazing ability and capability to attract some of the best and brightest talent that get the opportunity to work on multiple clients' problems. And that's one of the things that I love about the, the role I have is I get to see everyone's problems, everyone's challenges, and we get to play and see with all the technology tools and whatever else that can solve some of these things. Whereas if I was in a nine to five, eight to six, seven to 10 uh, environment in, a, in one organization, all I would ever face with is one organization. So that variety and skill and capability for me is actually a really unique opportunity to share that with clients going forward. And to that point, actually, around the, the gig economy, you know, the, the consulting model is predicated on a pyramid and there are certain expectations within that pyramid that the junior layers will support the senior layers in both delivery, but also business development, building the firm, et cetera. 
To what extent does or doesn't the gig economy and moving to a more transactional basis where you're hiring people in to do projects put strain on some of the cultural norms that that pyramid model is predicated on? I think it supports it more than anything else. I mean, ultimately, if you're leveraging an external party for help, you are sharing the risk or whatever else to go, I need your help on this problem. Can you help me solve it? And depending on your commercial model, it may actually allow you to use direct or indirect resources to go solve that. So ultimately, Mm. certain resources, I mean, go back to year 2000, right? The Y2K bug that everyone went to. Go look at issues that have a, a pressure point on them. In our industry, IFRS 17, Solvency Mm -hmm. 2, all have a fixed date that need resolving by. And as we get closer to the date, the rate for those individuals, whether they're fixed perm or contractor employees, dynamically changes. So it really Mm -hmm. is a supply and demand role. And that's the role that consultancy organizations, in my mind, have in this place. We hire, you know, it feels like a gazillion, it's probably not a number, I get it, consultants and people that focus on data science. Mm. Everyone does. But do you want to go and work in one organization as a data scientist, or do you want to become a pool of people that get to go and solve some of the crunchiest and most challenging organizational challenges and move from project to project time and time again? And certain people are just built and designed in different ways. I love variety. And that, for me, constantly feeds my need for curiosity and elsewhere by understanding and challenging these clients or helping to address these clients' challenges. I think where I was taking it with the gig economy, and I've not worked as an associate for any of the big four, so I don't know if it's different inside the big four, but to that point around variety, you you can certainly get that in the gig economy. You know, you do one project with one company, one project with another. I guess it's more the pyramid requires a certain number of people at the bottom to fill up to the top. And actually, if you're losing more people at the bottom, could you foresee or could you get to a point where so many people are off doing gig-style work that they're very happy doing at whatever level, that actually you lose the critical mass at the bottom to feed up to that top and sustain growing a partner group and the longevity of a firm? Or is that just so far away from happening that it's not even worth considering at the moment? It's, it's definitely a risk, but I don't see it happening at all. I see, I think as a consultant, we were laughing about this earlier, I think I spent half my day worrying about oh my God, with someone on the bench, how do we get utilization? And the other half of my day going, oh my God, we need more people. We've just sold more work. And I think that Mm. is every consultant's day in, day out dilemma that you switch between more people, too many people, more people, too many people. And our job is becoming experts in predicting what accounts we're working on, how we engage and where we fulfill those roles for. There is only a finite number of people that know, let's, let's choose COBOL. As a dying out technology, it is known by a smaller and smaller number of people going forward. And the number of people training up in legacy technologies these days is is diminishing, right? No one wants to come out of mm. university and go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to learn XML or, or Java or whatever it might be. I want to go learn COBOL. That would be yeah. an interesting career choice, right? So there's a limited skill set. And our job, therefore, is to work out how many we need to hold as permanent based on a demand at any one point in time, and how many we can get from the contractor or gig gig economy. But I don't see that changing or having changed in in many years, to be fair. So I want to come on to something that at least I consider innovative in consulting. And to be honest, since I came across you through your podcast, through the sort of 11FS podcast, InsureTech Insider, and sort of the work that they do, I've been dying to ask you, and I'd be interested in the answer, because something that I think our industry is known for to an extent is firms are very open within themselves, but consulting firms are very protective 
outside. So you will rarely see consulting firms share with each other, co-host events, do anything together. So seeing yourself as a Deloitte partner run a podcast with a what could be called a competitor firm, 11FS, work in a similar space, I'd be fascinated about actually how that partnership came about and potentially what challenges or questions you faced in making it happen. Yikes. Okay, so it's a fair question. And I think you're right. They could be perceived as a competitor sometimes. My attitude is much more open than that. And the same I have with clients in that I think there's enough out there for the right people, the right expertise and the right mindsets to go after. Uh, David Brayer, the CEO and founder of 11FS, and I have known each other for quite a while. We were aware of what they were up to with FinTech Insider, focusing on the banks. David mm. knew some of the things I was doing around the insurance world. And given David's background, actually in insurance as well, it was a, a reasonably straightforward conversation that said, let's do something interesting, exciting for the industry in insurance. And I think we have a an industry first in sharing a platform with a voice for startups, for incumbents, for others, to talk about cool things from catastrophe insurance was our last episode, through to data, through to mm. AI. And as we're doing here, almost sharing what those industry issues are and giving people a platform for working out what and where they reach their new audience. And we, our, our listenership is everything from startups around the world through to boards of large incumbents and elsewhere. And ultimately, I think it leads to net new work and net new ways of thinking about both 11FS and Deloitte. I don't want to be known mm. as the guys that produce endless reports with uh, large organizations. I want to try things that are new and, and innovative. And this is one of the ways of doing it. I think this is probably one of the first podcasts in the UK, at least, that Deloitte's done. The reception mm. internally has been phenomenal from the partners both here in the UK and globally. And it's recognized as a, a great channel to market and a great partnership. I agree with everything that you've just said about why you do it. And I also agree with you on podcasts. I think they're a massively underutilized uh, media in our industry. And I think more and more consultancy should be doing them. I guess to that point, you, you obviously, you got it, David got it. I assume it's, and maybe you didn't, but I assume at some point you had to bring this back to base and go to your colleagues at Deloitte, look guys, I've got this idea. Am I okay to do it? What challenges did you, or questions did you face and how did you overcome that? Because I think for others in the industry potentially looking to start podcasts, I know people who have had challenges simply releasing their own. So to release a podcast with another firm feels like you could throw up a number of internal challenges. Did you get any? And if so, how did you overcome them? Of course I did. And generally, so but by its very nature, we are a partnership. So um, whilst I may have a capability and capacity to go out and do my own thing or whatever else, I would never do something that would be in not in congruence with what the partnership would want. So mm. I respect every one of the peers that I have around, around the firm. And I went to the insurance leadership with the idea and they were fully supportive at the outset with regards to doing something different, establishing a voice, doing something uh, unique in the marketplace. My, my mm. main challenges were not to do with the partnership, but to do with the fact that we're an audit firm. And on certain issues, we wouldn't be allowed to talk to whether it was a particular client that we audit or elsewhere. And that is a fact for any firm that does audits, any of the big four or other firms that do audits. And that's not a, a Deloitte thing. That's a rules of the game. And my, mm. my basic premise in all these things is, if you understand the rules of the game, then you're able to play. If you don't understand the rules of the game, then you can't play. Everything that we do is pre-approved and works through in advance with our risk management team uh, in a mm. way that they are 
they established a new way of working to make sure that these things could go out in time and everything else. And it was pretty seamless. So, you know, it was a it was a grinding through it for the first episode or two. But after that, we worked out a method and we just get it done. Brilliant. And for anyone listening who is considering or has listened to either my podcast or one of the many 11FS podcasts and yours included in there and is thinking, actually, I kind of think I should do one of these. So what benefits from a business perspective have, have you seen as a result of doing your podcast? Oh, there's loads. So what I love it. I, I find it both educational because half the startups that we meet or the, or the people we bring along, whether it's Oliver at the FT or a startup or one of the folks in the incumbent insurers, I'm forever learning. I'm, I'm in one of these mm. people that's curious about lots of stuff. I, I've fallen in love with insurance over the last 10 years, but there are so many cool things and experts out there, whether you've got you know David Williams over at AXA talking about self-driving cars and the pilots that they're doing, whether it's the folks with business interruption and risk management and stuff like that with uh, Emil and Tien that we did in the last episode, all the way through to some of the cool AI and stuff. So I'm continuously learning from these sorts of things. I think they're a great opportunity to put our voice to those learning experiences, but equally challenge back. And also then change it to your point, and hopefully I'm doing the same on the call here, change the perception of traditional big four consultants. Ask yourself five years ago, or go back to your time at a, a previous consultancy firm, would you have expected a big four to jump into bed with a potential partner, your words, of competitor, your words, not mine, and get out there and do something positive for the market? And I think I'm going to ask, I'm curious actually on that point of, what is the misconceptions that people have around big four partners as they stand today? Big four, sorry, just for clarification, big four organizations or partners. Take them as one and the same or break them up if you need. But I think you sometimes hear people create a dichotomy between smaller, to your point, challenger consultancies and the big four. What are those common misconceptions that you think people get wrong about the big four that are potentially stopping them applying or, or working with one of them or your firm particularly? So my personal experience is that people think the big four do traditional consulting type work or tax or audit or advisory, whatever else. And yes, a large proportion of our business is traditional advisory, consulting, regulation, et cetera, et cetera. What people don't always see is we get to get to do some of the coolest stuff known to man. And, Go on. and some of it I simply won't share. Um, because of client sensitivity or whatever else. But we have this uh, campaign inside Deloitte called Deloitte Do, and it's all about mm. highlighting the folks that actually do things inside other organizations and that often aren't seen or the front men or whatever else. But we genuinely get to play with some of the most interesting organizations, the crunchiest problems, the coolest technology, the best partnerships that you could ever want for. I genuinely wake up every morning and go, I have got the best job in the world. I could not imagine my life in any other way. And all our partnerships are listed on, on the website and whatever else. Some we're not mm. allowed to talk about. But generally, the folks that we engage with, how they engage, the access that we have, and, and the respect that we have from our clients, because we bring the A-game pretty much every single time. And that gives mm. you a whole load of respect in the market, I think, for the work that we do and the work that we can do. And back to my earlier point, if we can't do it, we're just going to say, no, we don't do it, and recommend someone else. It's not worth mm. our reputation or anything else to take on something that we can't deliver. We simply wouldn't do it. 
And I want to turn... So to, you, you want to come back to a big fauna, don't you? Well, no, I think, I, I mean, that's a, a hell of a pitch. I think you, you've got me applying to Deloitte now with a, a pitch like that. I still want to know what some of the cool stuff is, but maybe we, we do that off the podcast. Well, hang on. So I, 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 interv- <laughs> I interviewed one of our interns who was joined the firm for a couple of weeks during a summer intern, and mm. his first task was to go and work on our Google Alliance. That, that does sound very cool. He was the envy of every single one of his fellow interns that couldn't or didn't get to do and work in an exciting place. We've just opened a brand new facility here in London. It is an amazing place to work. It is just stunning. A great environment, great people, the latest and greatest of everything you can imagine, and a great way for us to engage and collaborate with clients. And so I want to turn to another point that I think at least other partners in big four firms have told me is a misconception. And you can tell me if it is, and then I would be interested in your response to it is you will hear very often people say, oh, if you're in a big four, it's people buy the badge. And I interviewed another partner from PwC, David Lancefield, who made the point that actually, yes, there's the badge, but people buy people. And the reason for that preamble is something that I think you've done very effectively is carve a niche for yourself in the insure tech space. You, you, know, you are known in the industry as Mr. Insure Tech. I've sort of heard numerous other accolades and intros and sort of all podcasts and talks you've done. Well, all the ones I've listened to were positive, yeah. And I think to that, to that specific point, you know, what steps have you taken or sort of looking back, how have you carved that niche for yourself? I think we mentioned Orpair before we started. I have a couple of rules that I live by. Uh, one of them is very much do what you love. And I'm genuinely mm. interested and excited by what InsureTech brings to the insurance table. And mm. my curiosity, the team I've got around me who are fantastic, the curiosity, the passion that they have for understanding what these disruptors can and cannot do for insurance, I think mm. drives that day in, day out. And, you know, back to honesty, if we think it's interesting but irrelevant, we'll quickly call out and say, that's really interesting, but not very relevant for our client base today. So mm. let's be aware of you, but let's not do anything with it. And, you know, you talk politely, thank you, with regards to some of the things that we've established within the industry. That also comes with, in my mind, great responsibility. Because if a client comes to me, they would expect a, can you help me understand how this fits in for my business? And if you don't know, where can you go to go and get that? We've got this capability globally that scans the market on an ongoing basis for you know, any number of the 3,000 plus startups that are that are generally playing inside insurance right now. And for me, I, see, I feel a, a sense of duty to our clients to make sure that we give them the best possible insights and advice we possibly can. And so, you know, like you said, we, we talked at the start sort of pre, pre-coming on air about those sort of life philosophies. And I, I fully agree with you on those. Now, I'm thinking for any other sort of directors or partners who are listening to this, what advice would you give to partners who are maybe nervous about pushing that press angle, pushing the, the sort of media angle, because for them it's, I focus on, you know, my tight client relationships and delivery, or I leave that to my marketing function. You know, first, first and foremost, not everyone is cut out to or enjoys doing podcasts. It's quite a unique, not skill, that's the wrong word, but a unique thing that people either enjoy or don't enjoy. I know some really, really, really smart people that would absolutely hate and quiver under the whole idea of doing a podcast to other people but they're some of the smartest people on the planet. So you've got to find the right people first and foremost that are curious, engaged, challenged, excited by this first and foremost. Number two, I, I would also then go and work with your media or PR teams accordingly to go, actually, do we think people will listen to this? And if we do, 
what th- what do we want to be famous for? I want to be famous for a voice, a platform for insurance tech, and then how it's dis- disrupting the general insurance or London market in, in general, and giving people a platform to share that thing. It could go much further. We've talked about what we could do with cybersecurity. We've talked about what we could do on regulation and so much more. And you'll find more and more podcasts and videos coming out from, from Deloitte on a regular basis. One of my mm. favorites is uh, Ian Stewart, our chief economist. He does a Monday morning email followed by a YouTube post every week with his updates on the economy. And it's fascinating. It's, it's Ian as a Deloitte economist or the chief economist. And it's got some really interesting points about what's going on both in the UK and beyond. And there's some pithy points about the news as well. And I find that really insightful and interesting going forward. And so I'm a big believer in the power of things like podcasts, things like video that you just talked about there with Ian. To your point there, though, about the partners who are fantastic at what they do, smartest people you know, and I've met similar. And I remember I had a conversation with a very senior partner who said, Nick, I could speak in front of 10,000 people in a room, but you put me in front of a video for YouTube and I just couldn't do it. And what advice, you know, you will be having these, people will, I'm sure, be asking you, you know, Nigel, you're really good at this. What should I do? What advice do you give to those people who maybe a podcast isn't their thing or a video isn't their thing, but they've seen the power of getting involved in the conversation on an industry level and want to do that. And that's why I love the partnership because there's always someone that will want to do that. And you, there's, there's no reason why you can't collaborate with others so that you mm. have a friendly voice in the room or you just don't do it. There's always a means to, to do it, right? We've all written enough reports, white papers, thought leadership pieces and so forth. Some of them are extremely long. I was hearing about a 200-page report the other day. I know Sarah 11FS always gives out about the length of some of these reports that can be quite dull and heavy to read. And there's new ways of actually consuming these, these media. But you've got to find the right media for both you, but more importantly, your audience. If your audience is used to and comfortable and wishes to consume it in a report format that they can sit in a quiet room and read it on, the, on their own, then doing a podcast won't work. If your audience is a commuter that wants to spend 45 minutes on a train or spends 45 minutes on a train or a car or whatever else and is happy to uh, listen to a podcast, then it's a great way to try it out. And the beauty of these is they're easy to try, they're relatively inexpensive, and you can continuously tweak and tune the, the, the mechanisms, the people, the style, whatever else that you go with. Completely agree. Now, Nigel, I'm very conscious of time, and I know you've stayed extremely late in the office to record this, so I've got two last questions and then we'll wrap up and I'll, I'll let you go. So these are questions that I ask all of my guests and I'll be very interested on in the answers to both from yourself. So the first one is about books. So to your point around media, I listen to a heck of a lot of podcasts. I also read a lot of books as do my listeners. And I like to ask each of my guests, what are the book or books that you have gifted or recommended most? And and why is that? Oh, God, you've caught me out. I am rubbish at books. So I have a great, what I believe, a good collection or a great collection of books. I like buying books. I am terrible at reading them. So for me, my personal way in which I consume stuff is I'll see an article or a report, I'll save it to Pocket online, and mm. then I'll try and get to it at some point. In reality, I'll open up Pocket after a week of not looking at it, and there's like 300 things to go read. Well, let's maybe change it. And, and you're not the first guest who said they, well, know, on, books aren't on. there. Oh, go on, that go said, on. There are books. I have gifted, quite happily, the InsureTech uh, book, which was, <laughs> I have a chapter in there, Frictionless Insurance in a Land of Utility, page 286. 
Uh, I believe is my chapter. I'll say that again. Frictionless insurance in a land of utility. Uh, what what I love about that was Sabine and the rest of the uh, the editors got together a crowdsource back to gig economy, a crowdsourced group of uh, authors. It was seventy in total that were passionate about their particular topic and worked out a way of bringing that together into a book format and saying, at this point in time, here are people's thoughts on where insurance and insurance insurance tech is going. Well, I will put a link to the book and to your chapter in the show notes. So Fantastic, thank you. can find it. I will ask, though, again, to your point around that, your sort of method of storing articles, it might be just you, you absorb them through Twitter and LinkedIn and other mediums, but do you have any go-to media, I'll say media outlets, you know, do you have any go-to podcasts, go-to YouTube channels, go-to influencers that on a Monday morning when you hop on the train, you are checking them before you check any others? So, so you mentioned people earlier, and I think the insurance and insurance tech industry is littered with great people. I am a, an avid user of Twitter. I feel like it's walking into a coffee shop, joining a random conversation, then walking back out again with your coffee. And I do it when I'm on the train, in between meetings. I always see what's going on. And for that, I think there's a really interesting group of people. You, you just need to go look at the InsureTech top 50 influencers. And again, I'm not a fan of the word influencer elsewhere, but there's a group of people that are continuously debating and discussing industry issues, whether it's uh, women in insurance, whether it's diversity, whether it's insure tech, whether it's the incumbents, whether it's whether, you know, GAFA, the Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apples will take over the world or whatever else, whatever else it might be. And for that, there is a good group of people that are continuously debating the here and now. I also write a blog on the Deloitte website called, um, we use something called Passel. It's a great tool. Check out mm-hmm. David Kirk and the Passel team if, you, if you've not seen it already. But we use that tool for, I guess, micro-blogging about the here and now. And it's a great way. So check out deloitte.co.uk slash fsbytes. I'll put it in the show notes so that everyone can, can find it as well. Fantastic. And we've got insurance on there. We've got our cyber guys. We've got banking and so many more now making comment and giving opinion on news of the day. And I love that as a go-to place, both for my colleagues and from third parties. And as I said, I won't call anyone out in particular. There's a load of great podcasts out there, whether you're looking at Denim in the States, whether you're looking at Ryan Hanley, formerly, uh, or just moved, actually, should I say, to uh, Bowl Penguin uh, in North America. People like Chris Cheatham, the Dr. Dre of insurance. You see that it actually exists. Uh, and If we had time, I would delve into that. The Dr. Dre of insurance is a great title. There's some great people out there who are as passionate, and if not way more than I am, about insurance. Fantastic. Well, I'll include the links you mentioned in the show notes. If after this, if that top 50 influences you mentioned on Twitter, if there's a link, ping it over and I'll I'll include that as well. So the very last question, and again, this is one that I ask all of my guests and, and take how you choose is you have three people in front of you. You have one who is just starting their career in consulting. You have one who is four to five years in, so loosely senior consultant manager level. And you have one who is approaching partner. So at Deloitte, I believe that's director level. Yeah. What one piece of advice would you give to each of those three people? Oh, wow. Um, To my junior guy, my advice would be build your network. And what I mean by that is make people aware of what you do, what you don't do, and don't sit inside the bubble that you were given, whether you were in an apps team, a data team, or whatever else it might be. My enjoyment has come from meeting people outside of the world in which I operate in day in, day out, whether that's at social events, whether that's at uh, company events or elsewhere. 
But meeting people from different industries and different places has opened up a world of opportunity, both in insurance and elsewhere for me. So network and network like hell. The folks that you meet today in your analyst or consultant grade or whatever else will be your fellow partners in years to come. So build your network. Who was the second group? Loosely senior consultant to manager level. So five, six years in, four to six years. Decide what you wanted. So for my senior consultant guys, work out what you love and what you want to do best and what you want to excel at and build your brand for that. So by now, you'll have established your network. You know where you are. People will be familiar with what you are famous for. Continue to evolve that. Continue to leverage your network. But equally, follow something you love. Make sure you're continuously challenged and, and you enjoy the work that you go to. Don't be afraid to ask for something different, do more. Rightly or wrongly, environments are, can be very, very competitive. So standing out and being seen to stand out is important, but nowhere near as important as being the guy that says, or girl that says, I work well as part of a team and together we'll get there. Brilliant. And then finally, for a director then you'll have either entered the firm as a director or senior manager. You'll know the, the, you'll know the role. You'll know the, the position. You'll know what uh, the journey to partner looks like. This is a well-trodden path. I think once you get to partner, again, the advice that I give to any of the people, your network will be as important as anything that you had previously. But understand at this level how you then evolve once you've become partner What's your area? What do you do? How, what is, in my case, Nigel Walsh famous for? Is it disruptive technology and insurance? Is it helping others out? Is it being the digital guy? Is it the guy that's not afraid of jumping onto podcasts or interviews with journalists or what's not? But I've never gone wrong in any of my careers for being the person that did the right thing for the firm and helped others. Brilliant advice. Well, Nigel, I think that is a great place to finish for tonight. And like I say, I'm very conscious you've got a, a commute home after this. So all that's left to say is, is thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if people want to find out more about yourself, where would you point them to? Where could they get in touch? Either uh, ndwalsh at deloitte.co.uk is my email, or you'll find me regularly on Nigel Walsh at Twitter. Or of Brilliant, course, Nigel. the InsureTech Insider podcast. Very true. I will put links to all of those in the show notes and people can, can reach out from there. So Nigel, thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.